morning. Let's go back to September 29th, 2006. That's when Petty Officer Michael Monsor is United States Navy SEAL. There he is. Operating in Ramadi, Iraq. Monsor is standing on a roof in Ramadi, and he's standing in front of a doorway to this roof. He has two Navy SEAL teammates lying in the sniper-prone position next to him. They've already taken AK-47 fire and a rocket-propelled grenade, but they're not exactly sure where the enemy is. There's a bit of a lull in the fighting. Insurgents have blocked off the streets in Ramadi, and there's someone on the loudspeaker in the town mosque yelling, kill the Americans! As Monsor and his team are looking for the next attack, an insurgent from an unknown location throws a grenade up on the roof. It hits Monsor in the chest, and it falls to his feet. Due to the length of the throw, there's no opportunity to pick it up and throw it back. He has only a split second to make a decision. He can leap through the doorway behind him and save himself, but if he does, his two teammates lying at his feet will surely die. Monsor yells, Grenade! But instead of jumping backward to save himself, he jumps forward chest first onto the grenade. It detonates. 30 minutes later, 25-year-old Michael Monsor is dead. His two teammates lying at his feet receive only minor injuries because Monsor's body muffled the blast. One of the survivors said at Monsor's funeral, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, you will not take my friends, I will go in their stead. I've never seen a United States president cry until April of 2008. That's when President George W. Bush invited Monsor's parents into the East Room to give them their son's Medal of Honor posthumously. The president couldn't even get through the citation without breaking down. Since then, Monsor's High School in Garden Grove, California, built a new stadium. They named it Michael A. Monsor Memorial Stadium. The golden trident insignia that the SEALs wear dominates the 50-yard line. Four years ago this month, January 2019, San Diego, California, the United States Navy commissioned the USS Michael Monsor, the newest guided missile destroyer in the fleet, Zumwalt class. This is Monsor's mother, Sally, being escorted onto the ship, named in honor of her fallen son. Now, why did they do this? Because Michael Monsor literally sacrificed himself to save his friends. There's no greater love than to sacrifice yourself to save your friends, said Jesus of Nazareth before he went to the cross. Michael Monsor sacrificed himself to save his friends. The question is, would anyone sacrifice himself to save you? And the answer is, someone already has. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. 
But in today's culture, a lot of people don't think the story's true. They think it's invented. After all, it was written down by religious people. We know religious people tend to embellish things. And it's got miracles in it, like a resurrection. We don't believe in miracles anymore. How can we believe in such a thing? Well, I actually think it's quite easy to show that Christianity is true. You only need to answer four questions. In other words, if you investigate and answer these four questions, I think you'll realize that the answer to these four questions is yes. And if the answer to these four questions is yes, then you can know that Christianity is true. What are the four questions? Here are the four questions. Now that is some pretty grooving music, isn't it? Yeah. That's actually from our TV show, which is on every Wednesday nights here in Louisiana. It'd be 8 p.m. Eastern time. If you have direct TV, it's on 378. How many people here have direct TV? Can I see your hands, please? Direct TV. Like 12 of us. Come on, friends, don't let friends watch cable. All right, so you can watch it on Roku. Anyone have Roku? All right, if it's, on, if it's on Roku, it's look for NRB, National Religious Broadcasters. If you don't have DirecTV and you don't have Roku, it's on this new technology sweeping Louisiana right now. It's called the Internet. Have you guys heard of this? You can go to our website right there, crossexamine.org, right there in the left-hand corner and watch the program. We present evidence for Christianity. We cross-examine ideas against it. We also have a radio program. I understand it is on in this area. AFR, you guys listen to AFR, American Family Radio? It's like maybe 90.7 or 90.9 or something like that. It's below 92 FM. Uh, and it's on every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. but or 9 a.m. Central Time. It's also podcasted. It's called the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. So you can listen to it anytime you want. Again, we present evidence for Christianity and we cross-examine ideas against it. Now, why are these the four questions? Truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. Well, the first question, does truth exist? You hear people say things like, there's no truth. You got your truth. I got my truth. All truth is relative, right? Well, if there's no truth, Christianity can't be true. Of course, if there's no truth, atheism can't be true either, right? So there has to be truth for Christianity to be true. Second question, does God exist? Obviously, Christianity can't be true if there's no God. In the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we give three arguments for the existence of God independent of the Bible. You don't need the Bible to know that God exists. And from those three arguments, you can see that there really is a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who created all things and sustains all things. The third question is, are miracles possible? Obviously, Christianity can't be true if miracles are not possible. But in the book, we try and show you that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred, and even atheists are admitting the evidence for this miracle. Then we get to the key question, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer if there's no truth, no God, or no miracles. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if the documents are reliable enough to let us know if one particular event from the ancient world took place. And that event is the resurrection. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, 
game over Christianity is true. Of course, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, game over, it's false. As the great apostle Paul said, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, your faith is in vain. Do you realize that Christianity is really one of just maybe a couple of religions in the world, Islam you might make this case for, that you can investigate to see if it's true. You can actually see if Christianity's true. You can actually look at the, the evidence and see if it's true or not. You might be thinking, well, Frank, why would we do that? Aren't we supposed to just have faith? No, a thousand times, no, you're not supposed to just have faith. You're supposed to get evidence that it's true and then be able to defend it. And there are many passages in the Bible that even talk about this. Here's just one of them. Peter says, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the gentleness and respect thing is hard for me because I'm originally from New Jersey, all right? But we've got to give evidence for what we believe. Why, why should you be a Christian and not a Muslim? Why should you be a Christian and not an atheist or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a New Ager? Or why should just be, just be nothing? Why? Because there's evidence it's true. That's why. Now, I know in your little bulletin there, it says we're going to do does truth exist? I just felt this morning, instead of doing truth, I want to do the New Testament. So we're going to jump to the New Testament. Let me just say uh, 15 seconds on does truth exist? When people say there's no truth, what question should you ask them? Is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough, but that's because it's self-defeating. To say there's no truth would be like me saying I can't speak a word in English, right? You'd go, hey, you just use English to say it, okay? So we spent two chapters on pointing out that truth does exist. Second question, does God exist? There are several arguments for God. Here's just one that the universe literally exploded into being out of nothing. And even atheists admit this. Now question, ladies and gentlemen, if space, matter, and time came into existence out of nothing, what could have caused that? Whatever caused space, matter, and time can't be made of space, matter, and time. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create, because to go from a state of nothingness to a state of creation, someone had to make a choice and only persons can make choices. The being or the cause would also have to be intelligent to have a mind to make a choice. Ladies and gentlemen, when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, who do you think of? God. You say, how do you know it's a Christian God, Frank? We don't from this one argument alone. But if you keep going through the evidence and you get to question four and you realize Jesus rose from the dead, then you can say the same being that walked out of the tomb 1,990 years ago is the same being who in his divine nature created the universe out of nothing. Now, the third question, are miracles possible? A lot of people don't believe miracles are possible. When people say that, I normally say, look around, you're living in a miracle. You know, the greatest miracle in the Bible is not the resurrection. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, every other verse is at least possible. Isn't it interesting, ladies and gentlemen, you now have even atheists admitting that the evidence for Genesis 1-1 exists. 
that the universe did have a beginning. They don't think it's God, but what else could it be that created the universe out of nothing? So if Genesis 1-1 is true, resurrections are possible because if God can create the universe out of nothing, can he resurrect Jesus from the dead? Can he walk on water? Can he part the Red Sea? Can he do any of that? Of course he can. He created the universe out of nothing. So what I want to spend time on is this fourth question here with that little setup. And in the book, we have the top 10 reasons we know the New Testament writers told the truth. We don't have time for 10. We're going to briefly only look at two, okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to try and discover if Jesus really rose from the dead. We're not going to assume the Bible's inerrant to do that or it's inspired even. We just want to see if the documents are reliable enough historically to let us know if it makes sense to believe Jesus rose from the dead. And the two arguments we're going to do, the first one is something called embarrassing stories. You say, what's embarrassing stories? Historians know that if an author writes something that is embarrassing to the author or authors, it's probably true. Why would it be true? Because you're not going to invent stories that embarrass you. You're not going to invent things that make you look bad. You might invent stories that make you look good, but not bad, right? In fact, let me ask a question in here. How many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look good? Look, if you don't have your hand up right now, you're lying (laughs) to make yourself look good. And it's not working. We know you're lying. All right, how many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look bad? You don't do that. You might lie to make yourself look good. You won't lie to make yourself look bad. Well, the New Testament writers, and this is true of the Old Testament as well, but we're just looking at the New Testament. The New Testament writers have filled the New Testament with embarrassing stories they never would have invented. That's why we call this the duh factor. They're not making this up. Let me just give you a few of these. Notice Jesus calls the leader of the disciples, Peter, he calls him Satan. Do you think they invented this? Do you think Mark who wrote this down at one point said to Peter, hey, Pete, I'm going to make this a real interesting story. I'm going to have the Lord call you Satan. What do you think Peter would have said? Have him call you Satan. This is embarrassing. And then Peter says, oh, Lord, I'll never deny you. What does he wind up doing? He denies him three times. And then at the crucifixion, all the disciples, maybe with the exception of one, they all run away as cowards. This is like a Monty Python movie. Run away. They all run away. And who are the brave ones? Who stays behind? The women. The women are the brave ones. Now, who wrote the New Testament down? Men. Now, what man is going to invent that he was hiding for fear of the Jews why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb. Would any man in here invent that? I mean, if I was inventing it, I'd make myself look good, wouldn't you? I mean, I'd write something down like this. Let's say we marched right down there and we overpowered that elite Roman guard. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. John said, get out. Peter, roundhouse kicked him. Philip said, we'll be back. And then on Sunday morning, we marched right down to the tomb and we saw Jesus who congratulated us on our great faith. And then we went and comforted the trembling women. I would never say it was Mr. Sissy Pants why the women went down to discover the empty tomb. And oh, by the way, why would you never say the women were the first witnesses in that culture? Forget about the fact it was embarrassing to men, it was. But independent of that, 
Why would you never say the women were the first witnesses? Because in that culture, a woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. So if you're making up the New Testament story, you'd only have the men be the first witnesses. Yet all four gospels say the women were the first witnesses, which is telling us what? They were as embarrassing as it was. In fact, one of the women was a formerly demon-possessed woman. Oh, gee, what a credible witness you got there. No, they're not making this up. I actually had a, a woman once come up to me and she said, Frank, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. I said, why? And she said, because he wanted to get the story out. <laughs> I said, that is an excellent point. I had not thought of that. Because ladies, when your man comes home from work, does he say much? There could have been a nuclear explosion down at the plant. He's not going to tell you. You'll see it on the news before you hear it from him. You'll be watching the news going, hey, hon, what happened? Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. Nuke blew up. I've been hot for three days. What's for dinner? He's not going to tell you. I can't even believe this next passage is in the New Testament. You guys know about the Great Commission? Of course you do. Matthew 28. This is the climax of the biography we call a gospel of Matthew, where Jesus takes his disciples up on the hill there in Galilee, and he gives them the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Notice he doesn't say make believers. There's a difference. Make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen, and law I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is the climax. This is the end of the biography, end of the gospel. Jesus is given his disciples marching orders. From here on out, this is what you're going to do. And it says right there in verse 17 about these disciples who are standing there. Some believed, but some doubted. What? He's standing resurrected right in front of them. And they're doubting? How embarrassing is that? It's like they're standing there going, you see that guy over there? Yep. That guy over there is Jesus. Oh, no, it can't be Jesus. He was just killed not long ago. No, I'm telling you, it's him. Look, the Romans killed him. Jesus is dead. It's him. It can't be. They, they whipped him. They nailed him to a cross. They put a spear in his side. Blood and water came out. Jesus is dead. It's him. Look, if the Romans didn't kill him, they would have been killed themselves. It can't be him. It's him. It can't be. It is. How do you know? The women told me. <laughs> They're not making this up. There's even embarrassing details in the text about Jesus they never would have invented. Notice in Mark chapter 3, it says Jesus' own family came to seize him and take him away because they thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was nuts. That's embarrassing. You may have heard the scholars say that the New Testament writers embellish Jesus to be God. Oh, really? Then why is Mark chapter 3 in there? His own family thinks he's crazy. His own brothers don't believe in him. That's embarrassing. He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance. In fact, there are two prostitutes in his bloodline. Who are they? Rahab and Tamar. Tamar plays a prostitute. Now, do you think that when Matthew and Luke decided to put the genealogies together, they said, you know what? I think we ought to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit. Let's put a couple of prostitutes in there. Let's see, Rahab, Tamar. No, 
This is embarrassing. In fact, there's a lot of embarrassing people you would never put in the bloodline of the Messiah. Judah, from where we get the term Jew from? Jesus from the tribe of Judah, not a good guy. He's one of the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery to Egypt. And yet he's an ancestor of the Messiah. David, David, a man after God's own heart. Yeah, but he's a liar, adulterer, and a murderer. Gee, I guess there's hope for the rest of us then, huh? Bathsheba's in there. In fact, when Matthew gets to Bathsheba in the genealogy, he won't mention her name, but he still mentions her. What does he say? Uriah's wife. He's telling the truth, but it's actually a slam. You notice that? Who is Uriah? Husband of Bathsheba, whom David had killed so he could have Bathsheba. They're not making this up. Jesus is called a madman. He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. Do you think they made this up? And then Jesus is hung on a tree. Why is that no good if you're trying to make up a Messiah to the Jews? Because anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse, according to Deuteronomy 21, 23. If you're making this up, you don't hang the guy on a tree. But it turns out he was hung on a tree. They didn't invent it. Notice, in the Bible, in Genesis, there are two trees, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Fast forward all the way to Revelation. What tree do you find? You find the tree of life. Notice how symmetrical the Bible is. But I think there's a tree in the middle, a third tree. What's the third tree? The third tree is the tree they hung Jesus on. Because we sinned at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the only way we could have access to the tree of life is if Jesus was hung on the tree he was hung on to take our punishment on himself. If he hadn't have done that, we wouldn't have access again to the tree of life. But if you're making all this up, you're not hanging the Jewish Messiah on a tree. That would be the last thing you'd want to do for a Jew because they thought he was under God's curse. And he was. What curse? The curse of sin that we all put him under. But again, it's embarrassing. They're not making it up. Let's do one more. Other than embarrassing stories, there's also excruciating deaths that are telling us these writers are not making this up. And this is the argument that says that these men who were in a position to know whether Jesus had risen from the dead or not died excruciating deaths when they could have saved themselves by simply saying, look, it never happened. Now, it's very important that when you consider this argument, you realize that all of the writers of the New Testament, with the exception of Luke, all of them are all Jewish believers in Yahweh. They thought they were God's chosen people. Luke is the only Gentile. The rest are all Jews. And there are two things Jews didn't believe prior to Jesus' coming. Number one, a man could claim to be God. That was blasphemy. Number two, there'd be a resurrection in the middle of time by one guy. They knew there'd be a resurrection at the end of time, according to Daniel 12, but they didn't think one guy would rise from the dead in the middle of time. And yet, that's exactly what they said happened. Why? Well, when you consider this, it's shocking the change of beliefs they had in a very short period. In fact, let's look at the apostles' beliefs and practices before and after the resurrection. Before the resurrection, they believed in animal sacrifice. They've been slaying lambs to Yahweh for hundreds of years. Then suddenly Jesus comes along and they go, 
we don't need to slay these lambs anymore because these lambs are just symbols of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. They give up the sacrificial system virtually overnight. Before they believed in a binding law of Moses. Afterwards, they say Christ's life has fulfilled the binding law of Moses. Before they believed in strict monotheism. Afterwards, they're believing in a trinity. Three persons in one divine essence. Yes, you can see the trinity in the Old Testament, but it's much clearer in the New. Before they believed in the Sabbath, in fact, they thought they could be stoned for not obeying the Sabbath. Suddenly, Jesus comes along and they're worshiping on Sunday because that's the day he rose, not because they're worshiping their, or they're, they're observing the Sabbath anymore. Paul even says in Colossians 2, don't let anyone tell you you have to obey any Sabbath or festival day. Well, why not anymore, Paul? Because the Sabbath has arrived. Who's the Sabbath? Who's our rest? Jesus is our rest. We rest in him. We don't work for our salvation. Jesus is it. In fact, out of the Ten Commandments, Nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. What's the only one that isn't? Keep holy the Sabbath. Because Jesus is our Sabbath. Before they believed in a conquering Messiah, afterwards a sacrificial Messiah, before they believed in baptism and communion, or I should say circumcision, afterwards they believed in baptism and communion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what would have caused these pious Jews who thought they were God's chosen people to abandon everything on the left and adopt everything on the right virtually overnight. The only thing I can think of is what psychologists call an impact event. What's an impact event? An impact event is, is something that occurs in your life that is so dramatic that it can change your point of view 180 degrees overnight. Some impact events are so dramatic that although you might not remember what you had for breakfast this morning, you'll remember an impact event that occurred 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago if you're old enough. In fact, there's probably only a few of you in this room who can answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you can remember where you were and what you were doing November 22nd, 1963, raise your hand and hold it up high. Ladies and gentlemen, look around the room. You see these people with their hands up? These people are very old November 22nd, 1963 is my earliest memory. I was two years old and two days. Yes, yes, I'm 61 years old now. I know, I know, I don't look a day over 60. In fact, when I hit 50, my wife was very encouraging. She said, honey, you're gonna live to be 100. I said, how do you know? She said, cause you look half dead already. <laughs> anyway, November 22nd, 1963, I'm two years old and two days. I'm a toddler. I'm standing in our living room in Wanamassa, New Jersey, and my mother is sitting on an ottoman in front of a black and white TV, weeping uncontrollably. Mommy, what's the matter? What's the matter? They killed the president. They killed the president. President Kennedy assassinated that day. Never saw my mother cry like that before. I can still see her right now in my mind when she was 26 years old sitting on that ottoman. In a few weeks, she's going to be 85. But I can see her when she was 26. That's my earliest memory. I don't remember anything before that and very little after that. Where were you when the second plane hit the tower? I was in my office in my home in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. I had the TV on behind me. I saw that uh, one tower had been hit. I didn't know by what. And I was on the phone 
with a pastor on the north side of Charlotte, and we were talking about what the topic would be if I came to speak at his church. And I said, do you have the TV on? He goes, yeah. I said, maybe a Cessna hit the World Trade Tower. And we're talking, talking, TV still behind me. And suddenly he yells into the phone. He goes, the second tower just got hit. I turned around, look at the TV. The second tower's on fire. I said, was it a Cessna? He goes, no, 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 no. It was, a, it was like a United plane. It was a passenger plane. I said, you saw that? He said, it was just on live TV. I said, look, um, let me call you back. I hung up the phone. And for some reason that morning, I had CNN on, the Communist News Network. <laughs> and I'm not making this up, but the commentator on CNN said, one has to think there's some kind of navigational error here. He said, navigational error? You dimwit. This is the clearest day in the history of the Big Apple. What do you think? Pilots can't see where they're flying? You think Stevie Wonder's flying these planes? I mean, come on, this is terrorism. I called that pastor the next day. I said, we're going to come to your church and talk about Islam because that's what this is related to. Now, 9-11 was over 21 years ago. And many of you in this room can remember something very vivid about that day. But if I were to ask you where you were 21 days ago, most of you are going to go, I don't know. Let me look at my iPhone. What was I doing 21 days ago? Why can you remember something from 21 years ago, but not 21 days ago? No impact event 21 days ago. Impact event 21 years ago. Do you think if Jesus really rose from the dead, they would have remembered that? Do you think if he really walked out of that tomb after being dead since Friday, that they would have remembered everything he said and everything he did from that point on? Do you think it would have turned their lives around if that really happened, that they would have abandoned everything on the left and adopted everything on the right? That's the only way I can explain it. Why else would they do it? In fact, if you think about this, these people had no motive to make this up. Think about this question. What did the New Testament writers have to gain by making up a new religion? What happened to them by saying Jesus had risen from the dead? Well, first of all, they got kicked out of the synagogue, and then they got beaten, tortured, and killed. Last time I checked, that was not a list of perks. We're going to start a new religion. We are? Yeah. What's it going to get us? We're first to get kicked out of the synagogue, then we'll get beaten, tortured, and killed. Well, sign me up. What a great idea. Why haven't we thought of this earlier? No. In fact... They had every motive to say the resurrection did not happen, not every motive to say it did. Sometimes I get the question, maybe you might get the question, are there any non-Christian writers that talk about Jesus and the apostles? Yes, they're all in chapter 9 of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, but they're not eyewitnesses. They're just repeating stuff they've heard, and it's congruent with what the New Testament says. But you know what's really underneath that question sometimes? It's an illicit assumption. What's the illicit assumption? that you really can't trust the New Testament writers because you see the New Testament writers were biased. Well, you can only trust the non-New Testament writers. Now, if you think about that for more than 10 seconds, you realize how silly that objection is. What did these people have to gain by saying it was true? Nothing. If they're biased at all, they're biased against saying it was true. Not that it was. It went against their worldview. Some of you may know my friend, Jay Warner Wallace. He's a cold case homicide detective. He's been on Dateline more than any other homicide detective because he solves murders decades old. He's also a Christian who has used his detective skills to investigate the greatest homicide of all time, the homicide of Jesus. It's a book called Cold Case Christianity. 
And Jim says that whenever he finds a body he knows has been murdered, he says, there's only three reasons why that guy's dead. Not a thousand reasons, just three or a combination of the three. There was either a relationship issue. Adults, you know what I'm talking about. It's three letters, starts with an S and ends with an X. There was a, a money issue or there was a power issue. Those are the three reasons why people will murder for those three things. Relationships, for money, or for power. Jim says, if you want to say that these guys made this up, you got to find one of those three motivators to say this is plausible. Now think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Let's go through this. Did the New Testament writers get real popular with the ladies for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? No, they didn't get that. Did they get money? Nope, no money. They weren't 21st century prosperity gospel preachers, okay? Did they get power? No, they got the opposite of power. They got persecuted. Paul had power. When he was a Pharisee persecuting the church, then as soon as he becomes a Christian, he's the one persecuted. He loses all his power. They didn't get the relationships they wanted. They didn't get the money they wanted. If they wanted it, they didn't get power. They had none of the motivators that would cause people to invent this. They had every reason to say it didn't happen, not every reason to say it did, and they went to their death saying it did. In fact... Why would they die for a known lie? Now, if you're going to say, Frank, that martyrdom is evidence for Christianity, don't you have to say that martyrdom is evidence for Islam? No. Why? Because there's a lot of differences between the Muslim martyrs of today and the New Testament writers of New Testament times. But just for our purposes, let's just look at one difference. The Muslim martyrs didn't witness anything for them to know that Islam is true. They just have faith. But the New Testament martyrs, on the other hand, witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They verified with their own senses that Jesus had risen from the dead. Some people will die for a lie they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament writers were in a position to know whether it was a lie or not, and they went to their deaths anyway. And you can't get better evidence than that unless you're there yourself. All right, last thing on this, and pastor, this is going to sound like heresy for just a minute, but it's not. Just stick with me. Christianity is not true because a series of documents we call the Bible that we put under one binding and we call the Bible says it's true. In fact, Christianity would be true if the Bible never existed. You say, how can that be? Do you realize there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Why? Because Christianity did not originate with a book. Christianity originated with an event, the resurrection. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with him. They wrote it down later. It's not the other way around. You wouldn't have books written by Jews in the first century claiming a man claimed to be God and then rose from the dead unless a man claimed to be God and then rose from the dead. We could put it this way. 
The New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. You wouldn't have these documents written down by these Jews in the first century unless an event like this really occurred. They had everything to lose by saying it was true. Nothing temporally to gain except a lot of pain and suffering. So they're not making this up. Now, these are just two out of 10 reasons. If you want to go further, you can. Uh, you can get the book. I'll tell you about it in a minute. But one, one other thing I want to mention here, we take this to college campuses. And this coming semester, we're going to about 12 different college campuses. Most of these are secular college campuses. We present the evidence, and then we set up a microphone for Q&A. And I, I want to give you a question you can ask somebody who's not a Christian, because this is the question I ask of atheists on a college campus when they're up to the microphone, especially if they demonstrate any hostility at all. I normally ask this question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists stand at that microphone in front of hundreds of people and say, no. No. How is it reasonable you wouldn't believe something if it were true? Because it has nothing to do with reason. It's not a head problem, it's a heart problem. They don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God. Why? Because they want to be God of their own lives. They're not on a truth quest, they're on a happiness quest. And they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy doing a lot of fun things over the short term, but over the long term, it's a disaster. And everyone in this room who's over 40 knows what I'm talking about because many of us have tried it ourselves. You want to get contentment? you got to go straight through truth, and Jesus is the truth. But we think we're going to do it our way. So always ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Now, if people have a negative attitude about Christianity because of Christians, I get it. Maybe you want to ask the question this way. If Jesus really rose from the dead to prove he was God, would you follow him? By the way, when somebody claims that Christians are hypocrites, you can agree with them. You know, you're right, we are. But why is hypocrisy wrong? It can't be wrong unless God exists. Otherwise, it'd be just your opinion. And by the way, when someone plays Beethoven poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Beethoven. So when somebody plays Jesus poorly, you don't blame Jesus. Just because I'm not true and beautiful doesn't mean Jesus isn't true and beautiful. Newsflash, Christianity is not Christians. Christianity is Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need a savior. Many years ago, I had a couple of debates with a guy by the name of Christopher Hitchens. You may have heard of him. He was a brilliant British atheist who sound more, sounded more brilliant than he was because he had a British accent. Anyway, I told Christopher in one of the debates, I said, Christopher, I'm a hypocrite. I can't live up to what Jesus said and did. But if I could, I wouldn't need him. If I was perfect, I wouldn't need a savior. And so when people say, I can't go to church because there's too many hypocrites down there, I always say, come on down, pal. We got room for one more. <laughs> yeah, we're all hypocrites. We need a savior. So we need to spread that message. Now, if you want to go further in this, the books are available on the book table. I want to point out all the proceeds from the sale of the books will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? <laughs> Just so you know, I got three sons, so I need some help. All right? Actually, I think we ran out of this book, the atheist book on the book table already, but that's okay. If you order it at the book table, it'll be here 
Next week, you can pick it up, no shipping. So just put your name in up there. Also, we have a 12-part DVD series that goes along with the book and a brand new book called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. My son and I, who was in the Air Force as a major, he's an intelligence officer. He was smarter than me. I went in the Navy and Navy stands for never again volunteer yourself. I don't know if you know that. But anyway, he's also been to seminary and we took some of the top movies in movie history and we point out how they all in some way steal from the greatest story ever told. And if you have young people or even older people that love movies, you can say to them, hey, if you like Iron Man, you're going to love Jesus. So you might want to check that out as well. In any event, text the word evidence to this phone number, 855-909-0582, 855-909-0582, because I'm going to send you the entire PowerPoint presentation, all 360 slides for I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I showed you like 15 today. And it's all going to be in a PDF format, so you can look at it anytime you want. Just text that word evidence to that phone number, 855-909-0582. Last thing. Christianity is true. So what? So what if it's true? Well, the best news ever, someone actually did die for you. Now, when I was in the Navy, I was in naval aviation, and we had to earn golden wings, which are fairly hard to earn, but there's nothing more difficult in the Navy, maybe any military to earn, than a golden trident. That's what the SEALs wear. Very few people that start SEAL training make it through, 5%, 10%, maybe. Those that do make it through SEAL training wear that trident with pride. It is their identity. When Michael Monsor was buried in Rosecrans Cemetery in San Diego, just about every Navy SEAL on the West Coast showed up for his funeral. And when they passed his casket, they took off their tridents and they pressed them into his casket. They took their identity and put their identity in the one that died for them, the one that sacrificed for them. That's what we're supposed to do. But in our country, we have all sorts of crazy ideas that we're going to put our identity in our political party or our ethnic group or our sexual orientation or our vocation or our boyfriend or our girlfriend. Ladies and gentlemen, none of that's ultimate. You can lose all that stuff. You know, you know what you can't lose? You can't lose Jesus. Jesus is our identity. One of the great biographers of all time, his name is John. And in his biography of Jesus, we call the Gospel of John. In the very first chapter, he says, God has given you the right to become a child of God. How do you become a child of God? You accept what God himself did for you. Your identity is in him. It's eternal. You can't lose it. It's secure. And this God didn't just die, he also rose again to show you that you will one day rise again. And if you've never accepted that identity, which is, which is free, by the way, Pastor Whalen's going to give you an opportunity to accept it now because it's true. Pastor? Let's stand together, please. And would you bow your heads and 
just let me say for a moment uh, what I feel deep within my heart. I've, I've baptized a man who is 90, baptized people who are in their 80s, and we all know, man, what a great experience that is because we understand about eternity. But my rejoicing comes for seven and eight and nine and 10 and 11 and teenagers who come to faith in Christ. Because then it gives you the whole of your life to grow close to God and to live for God. I pray that today will be a day in which you open your heart to God. But maybe you are the 80-something We need to know the living God. And he sent his son for that to happen for you and me. And so today we invite you with a gentle, warm-hearted invitation for you to publicly profess your faith in Christ. And for those of you who are believers to say, I want to get back on track with God and I want to live for him. So we're going to invite you to come. I'm going to pray. And as soon as my prayer is complete, the pastors will be here. The music will have begun and we invite you to come. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the preacher of your word. Thank you for the power that has been given through your spirit. God, now we pray we ask that you would draw people. Jesus has been lifted up. We know you are drawing. I pray 